Greetings and welcome back to The Dive, the weekly podcast in which we examine and explore issues that were brought up in uh, the previous week's study of Dafyomi, but we take a look at them in greater detail, in depth, uh, and uh, in the analytic fashion that we commonly refer to as Iyun. Um, the common practice in many yeshivot uh, is that at the beginning of a zman, the beginning of a semester as it were, the one of the Rosh Yeshiva, one of the heads of the Yeshiva, the master teachers, uh, gives a public shiur which is known as a shiur p'ticha, uh, the introductory shiur to the to the uh, masachet that's being studied, and uh, in in a daf yomi dive kind of format, it would be most appropriate to do that as the first shiur in a new masachet, uh, and so this will be a, sort of a shiur p'ticha of sorts. Uh, it's actually going to be a two-parter. This week will be more introductory, and next week we'll explore several specific topics uh, in the areas of Hilchot Shabbat, which are uh, vital and uh, and core to understanding the study of Masachat Shabbat. Um, and so this shiur is actually going to be broken up into three parts, which are going to go from the more general to the more specific, uh, the texts that we will study in this year, as you can see from the handout, are going to be almost exclusively uh, Tanakh and Chazal, with only one uh, comment of the Rishonim that we'll take a look at in the text, and that's a, a passage in the Rambam uh, that we'll deal with in our third and final section of the Shi'ur, which again will be more detail-oriented. Um, and so it is um, appropriate and, uh, and vital for us to get a broader sense of what Shabbat is about and, uh, and to see that through uh, the first section um, before going into, uh, into, the, into the greater details. We'll take a look at Source 1, and just as an introduction to Source 1 and the first section of the Shi'ur, the sections aren't titled, that's my job, um, is uh, we want to keep in mind that when we look at Shabbat from a perspective of the Masachet uh, and studying uh, Masachet Shabbat, or from the perspective of studying it in Shulchan Aruch or Aruch HaShulchan or Mishnah Berur or Kitzur Shulchan Aruch or any other halachic code, uh, we would come away with the impression, just from the perspective of weight given, um, severity expressed, to uh, the different areas of law, that Shabbat is overwhelmingly a restrictive day and a limiting day, and that the components of active and positive uh, engagement are somewhat minimized. And that, of course, is uh, a misunderstanding uh, and a misperception uh, that happens because we, we focus, when it comes to the legal discussions, on the legal details, on the minutiae, which are far greater in the area of restriction and restraint than in the area of positive action. So I'd like to give a, uh, a shall we say, more balanced perspective in this first section. Um, the first place that we meet Shabbat is, of course, in creation. And Psukim that we will see a little bit later on in this section, uh, that after the uh, first six days of creation, then we have Vayichulu, and God rested, and he sanctified that day, but of course, that's something that remains in the area of metaphysics and of theology and doesn't really reach man uh, until we come to the story of the man in Shemot Tetzayin, when for the first time B'nai Israel are presented with the great gift of Shabbat and are told that they will have no man to collect uh, on Shabbat and there'll be a portion on Friday, etc. Uh, however, Chazal understand that the, the mitzvah of Shabbat comes just a tad earlier than that, immediately after we cross Yam Suf. Take a look at source one. Immediately after we finish Shivat Hayam, we get the following passage. So Bnei Israel now continue moving, and they come into the desert known as Midbar Shur, and they uh, go for three days in the, in the wilderness, and there is no water. They come to a place called Mara, and this is, as an aside, a classic example of a place that's referred to by a name before the name exists, and then we find out the story that gives it its name. Uh, we're told in this pasuk, they come to a place called Mara, and they could not drink from the water of Mara because the water was bitter, and that's why it's called Mara. 
So they come to a place that evidently had no name, and uh, they find water that perhaps likely was stagnant, and they couldn't drink from it. And so they called it Mara, and so we refer to it as coming to Mara. The people complain. This is the not the first complaint that we hear of the people, but it's the first one after Kret Yamsuf, uh, where they say, what are we going to drink? Moshe's response is to call it to God. God shows him some, a, some wood. He throws it into the water. And the waters get sweetened. And as you can see, I highlighted that phrase. Literally, it means... There he gave him a chok umishpat, and there he elevated him or tested him, uh, and him here being the, evidently the nation. Uh, what is the chok umishpat? So the simplest read of it, of chok umishpat, is the word chok um, has several meanings. One of them is a, a, a law that is engraved, lichlachkok, and one of them also means a ration. Hatrifeni lechem chuki, give him my daily bread. We see in Mishlei. And so Chok here would very likely mean a rationing. There he, and there he is Moshe, gave Bnei Israel a ration of how much water each person can have. And what's the Mishpat? The Mishpat is evidently what the consequences are for violating that ration. However, Chazal understand it a little bit differently. And if you take a peek at source two, you'll see that, and this is the opinion of Rabbi, Rabbi Yoshua, but commonly quoted by uh, the Mefashim, Sham sam lochok in the mechilta of Bishmael, the Tanaitic Midrash, chok zeha Shabbat. And so the idea that Shabbat is something we were already commanded immediately after crossing Yamsuf, even before uh, the man, uh, is, uh, is found in this Midrash. And it's alluded to in the story of the man when Hashem says, which might be translated, see, God has already given you Shabbat, not as something new with the man, but it's a gift that you already have, and so we date it back to here. Now, the reason that that's critical for our purposes is because of the next pasuk. The pasuk that ends this story is Vayomer. So Moshe says to the to Bnei Israel, if you listen and heed the voice of Hashem, which means to obey God, do that which is straight and upright in his eyes, heed to his laws, and you keep all of his statutes, then then I will keep all the diseases that I sent on the Egyptians uh, from you, because I am God who heals you, Um. So the reason that I didn't highlight that second part will become evident in, in a little bit, but the the simple read of this is that you see from the fact that this water that was stagnant now miraculously was made potable uh, is that that's in God's hands. And therefore, I will take care of you and I will keep you from all the diseases, thirst, hunger, plagues, etc., cetera, uh, that you just witnessed in Mitzrayim happening to the Egyptians uh, and that's up to you, your own religious um, um, stand and your own uh, moral and ethical behavior uh, and, and your accountability to God. That is what will determine it. That's the simple read of the text. We're going to see this text come back in a little bit, in a minute. So take a look, please, at sources 3 and 4. And just to give a quick explanation, uh, source 3 is from the narrative telling us about the about Matan Torah and gives us the text of the Aseret HaDibrot, the Decalogue that B'nai Yisrael heard either all of or some of uh, at Har Sinai, the first two or all ten, and, um, and famously uh, in there, either number three or number four, depending how you count, is the command of, regarding Shabbat, which starts out with Zachor at Yom HaShabbat L'Kad Deshoh. So remember the day of Shabbat in order to sanctify it. Important to notice it's lekad show, not lekod show. It is uh, is a verb lekad show, lekadeshoto that there's a mitzvah to sanctify Shabbat. Chazal understand that's the mitzvah of kiddush. However, when Moshe Rabbeinu retells the story of Matan Torah and the Aseret Hadibrot in Sefer Dvarim, Parshat Vatchanan, as you see in four, Source Four, there are a number of um, of variants. Between, in that version uh, relative to the one in Shemot. Uh, the most famous one is Shabbat, and it starts out with not Zachor, but rather Shamor. And it says, Shamor, Yom HaShabbat Kacho, and then there is an addendum which exists here, and in the next Dibra, which is Kibbut Ava'em, which is, Just as God commanded you. 
Now, we'll get to the Shamor part, but first, the second half of the Pasuk is kind of strange. Just as God has commanded you, it's a little odd because since Moshe is retelling uh, almost 40 years later, the new generation about the events at Har Sinai, all of this is Kasher Tzivcha. So why does he pick, pick that on Shabbat and on Kibbut Aveim? So Kibbut Aveim is not our topic, but relative to Shabbat, so the Mepharshim weigh in on this, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. Uh, but for, for right now, let's take a look at the difference between Shamor and Zachor. What do the words mean? So Zachor is an affirmative word that is a call to action, to not lapse and to remember, to actively remember. And uh, if you to remember something to sanctify it, that means it's not just to keep something in mind, but there's a specific action you have to do, and that's how we understand it's the mitzvah of Kiddush. Rambam understands that's the mitzvah of Kiddush and Havdalah. In other words, I remember its sanctity both when it becomes holy and when its holiness departs. Shamor, on the other hand, to guard something means it's also an, an affirmative statement. You have to do something, but what you have to do is to act to prevent. You're guarding something, it means you're preventing. And so Chazal understand that Zachor refers to the uh, to the uh, active component of what we might call celebrating Shabbat, and Shamor refers to the restraint from doing violations on Shabbat. All right, so in, in that realm, we have a passage in the Gemara. It shows up several times in Chazal. Uh, however, it shows up in two diff- disparate manners, and they're brought together in this passage in Masachat Shvuot, in Source 5. Zachor v'shamor b'dibur echad nemru. So the first uh, statement the, the, here is that Chazal are, um, are addressing the disparity between the two versions. It says Zachor, and on the other hand says Shamor. And so Chazal say Moshe was not involved in editorial license here. Simply, Zachor v'shamor v'dibur echad nemru, which means at Har Sinai, what was uttered was the word Zachor and the word Shamor as one utterance. And the Gemara then goes on to say, which a uh, no mouth can utter, no human mouth can utter, and no human ear can even hear. And so the way they understand it is that both were stated, and so what is written in Yitro is, if you will, from the days of old stereo, the right channel, uh, Zachor, and then in Dvarim, it represents the left channel, the uh, Shamor. But in other words, that both of them are stated, and each version gives you half of the story, and you put it together. Uh, but that has another impact, and it's a halachic impact. Women are obligated from the Torah in the mitzvah of Kiddush on Friday night. Why is that? And why would we think not? Because Kiddush is a mitzvah tasei shazman grama. It's a, an active mitzvah, a mitzvah of action, which is time-bound. And nonetheless, women are obligated to Zachor v'shamor, because he's reading Zachor v'shamor not only as an overlay, but also as juxtaposed as a result of the overlay. And therefore, the reading is kol sheyeshno b'shmira, yeshno b'zechira. Anyone who is obligated to abide by the mitzvah, to guard, and therefore not to do the violations of Shabbat, is also obligated to remember Shabbat. And So women, since they're obligated to avoid doing any of the restrictions or violating any of the malachot of Shabbat, uh, therefore they are also obligated in the mitzvah of zechira. Now, there's something deeper going on in this juxtaposition. It's not just a little bit of wordplay, but there's something deeper going on. And it reminds us of something that, uh, as per the date of this podcast, is is something already on our minds, which is the mitzvah of matzah. Um, the Gemara tells us that women are obligated mid to eat matzah, even though, again, it is a mitzvah, it's time-bound. It's one night a year uh, that we have to eat matzah, and nonetheless, women are obligated to do it. Uh, why is that? Because the, the Torah in Tvarim Tetzayim Pasuk Gimel says, Shivat um, Yom don't eat chametz at the time of the Korban Pesach, rather eat matzah. And so, therefore, the notion is in the same manner, anyone who's obligated to avoid chametz is obligated to eat matzah. 
and women are obligated to avoid chametz because it's a lotase, therefore I have to eat matzah. And what is going on in these two passages? There's something, again, more than just the, the, uh, the serendipity of uh, juxtaposition. So it, it seems, uh, and we'll highlight the, the, this in Shabbat, that the notion is that, that one without the other really is incomplete. In other words, shamor without zachor is an incomplete picture of Shabbat. The idea of someone sitting and not doing anything during the day on Shabbat, it's kind of hard to imagine, but not doing anything on Shabbat, not uh, engaging in, um, in creative activities, not uh, writing and not, um, and not planting and not uh, cooking, etc., and nonetheless, not actively engaged in the positive, celebratory, social interaction uh, that we engage on Shabbat um, is, um, is something that uh, is a weird picture. But here the halacha is telling us something more than it. It's not just a weird picture. It's not, it's not keeping Shabbat. What, what Shmat Shabbat involves is both the restraint but also the active engagement. And I would take it even further to say that the restraint serves as the opportunity to be more actively engaged. In other words, by shutting out all sorts of areas of our life and all sorts of areas of the outside world and engagement, it gives us the opportunity to go deeper into the areas of our life that are and of our relationship with each other, our relationship with the community, our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, that we, that we have to, to, we have to uh, engage in. And that's something that the Sforno highlights here in Source 6. Uh, he picks up on the phrase in Tvarim, Shamart Yom HaShabbat Lekacho Ka'asher Tzivcha Adonai Do'echa. And the way that Ka'asher Tzivcha is typically translated is, is just like. In other words, keep uh, heed or guard the day of Shabbat to sanctify it just like God commanded you, meaning God commanded you and we're reminding you to do it, uh, he reads Kasher in a different manner. He reads Kasher as in the manner that. And he reads as follows. Meaning in the same manner that God commanded you in Mara, which again, Chazal understand as the first time that we're commanded regarding Shabbat. When he first commanded you there about Shabbat, he informed you that it will not be enough that you sanctify it by restraining and not doing malacha. But rather you should engage in Torah and mitzvot. So he reads, he looked back up at source one, the, the passage that is highlighted in blue as not being an, uh, an ancillary piece or even a consequential piece, but rather a vital piece to Shabbat, which is what the day of Shabbat is, is a day for engaging in Torah, engaging in mitzvot, meaning it's not a day just of restraint, but rather a day of engagement. And that's a critical piece for us to understand because it would be easy um, when we get uh, involved in the detailed study of Masachat Shabbat uh, with uh, all of the, not only minushi, but the almost exclusive focus of the first 16 prakim on the malachot of Shabbat and the details of the measure and the form and the context in which doing particular actions um, gives us liability uh, for violating Shabbat to forget this picture. So it's important to keep it in mind. Not to give the wrong impression, there certainly are some sugyot in Shabbat that deal with uh, with uh, Onik Shabbat and with celebrating Shabbat, as we might call it, and enjoying Shabbat, but they are really f- um, far uh, eclipsed by the, um, by the sugyot of Malacha, etc. Okay, so that's part one, kind of the broader picture of Shabbat. Part two is the whole issue of Malacha, which now we're going to focus on. And Malacha, when we speak about Malacha, we traditionally speak about, and we conventionally speak about, 39 avot melachot. 39 avot melachot. Now, the word av, which means father, is a word that's used in three different areas of halacha to denote a hierarchical structure. One of them is Shabbat, and we'll come back to that. One of them is nizikin. The first mishnah in nizikin is arba'a avot nizikin. There's four broad categories 
of Nezikin. Uh, and then the uh, third one is Tum'ah. In the area of Tum'ah v'tahara, the first Mishnah in Kelim is the Avot Nezikin. What are the, uh, the first, it's not the first Mishnah in Kelim, but in the first paragraph of Kelim, it's already a discussion of the Avot, Nezi, Avot HaTumah, sorry. So the Avot HaTumah are the Sheretz and Shechvat Zerah and Nevela, etc. And, uh, and, but Avot and Toladot don't mean the same things in each area. Um, in Tum'ah, they are issues of, um, of radiation out, shall we say. So in Tum'ah, you have a source of Tum'ah, and then the thing that has contact with it becomes a Tolada, a, a, uh, a, shall we say, a child of it. And then the one that has contact with that, if it's significant enough contact with all of the strictures, becomes a Sheni Tum'ah, etc. And the further you radiate out, the less likely it is that the item or person will be able to generate more Tum'ah, become distanced from it. On the other hand, in the areas of Nizikin and Shabbat, by and large at least, uh, a tolda is not seen as a uh, as a next generation distance piece, but rather a categorical subset. So there are categories of nizikin, and uh, and within those categories there are particular actions that are equal in severity and in weight, but are just not the one that's mentioned in the Torah. So, for instance, uh, the uh, the Torah talks about an ox scoring an ox. And that's the Av, called Karen. Uh, however, if you have a, um, a, a dog biting another dog, uh, that's also another form of Karen if it's done out of anger. All right? And the reason is because the essential qualities and characteristics of what Nigichav, Goring, are, then translate in the form into the dog and biting because dogs don't have horns and they attack with their teeth. Uh, when it comes to Shabbat, very much the same thing. We talk about 39 categories of Malacha. Avot Malachot, and the list is in Perak Zion, Mishtabet, and we'll get to it much later on in the in our study of Dafyomim Eretz Hashem. But um, but uh, each one of those Avot Malachot has theoretically an infinite amount of toladot of actions that carry the significant characteristics of the Av and are similar in in the vital ways and what a large part of our study of Masachat Shabbat is, is to flesh out what the characteristic, the vital characteristic of the Av is so that we can then identify toldot either in other actions that were extant at the time or actions that as a result of technology and development will, suddenly, will now become part of our world and do they fit into one of the Avot or not. Okay, so let's see where this whole notion of Malacha comes from. And again, uh, Source 7 takes us back to the very beginning. And you notice, and highlighted in blue, in describing uh, God's cessation from work, from creation, that three times in these three psukim, the word melacha shows up. It's highlighted in blue. Um, and that same word melacha is used when Shabbat is formally introduced in, at Mamar Sinai in Aseret Adibrot. And you see that it says, in source 8, Vasita Komalachtacha. So for six days you work and do your melacha, your melacha. But the seventh day is a Shabbat to Hashem your God. Do not do any melacha. And then it describes all the different people. And the reason is because God created the world for six days and on and rested, whatever that may mean, on the seventh day. And therefore God made the day of Shabbat holy and sanctified it so that we are therefore engaging in what's commonly called imatio dei, imitating God by not doing malacha on Shabbat. Okay, but so far, all we know is that there's this notion of malacha, and that malacha can be associated with God's creating the world, and that malacha is the sort of thing we're supposed to avoid on Shabbat, but details are not given here. Uh, critical, critically, the word avodah is used only occasionally in this context, but malacha is consistently used in what we're supposed to avoid both on Shabbat and on Moadim and, and on holidays. And as a result of that, we have to get a definition of malacha that uh, supersedes uh, and is not limited to just the notion of labor. Okay, so the key really starts in what, uh, in the context of this podcast, is Parshat Shavua, which is Parshat Vayakel. Now, Vayakel is... Um, is uh, describes the events that happen when Moshe gathers everyone to tell them 
about the commandments regarding construction of the Mishkan, and then describes the people enthusiastically bringing their wealth as donations to the Mishkan, and then Betzalel and his crew constructing everything, and it concludes at the end of Pekudei with the Mishkan being constructed and set up and dedicated as the, uh, and inaugurated, shall we say, as God's cloud descends on it and the Shekhinah is made manifest. And so it begins as follows, Vayakel Moshe, called up in Yisrael Vayamar Aleihem, Eile HaDvarim, you'll see why I highlighted those in red, Eile HaDvarim, something that's curious is Moshe is about to tell Bnei Yisrael about constructing the Mishkan. And he starts by saying, these are the words that God commanded uh, to do. And he starts with, For six days, Malacha shall be done. And on the seventh day will be a holy day, a Shabbat Shabbaton to God. Anyone who does Malacha on that day will die. In other words, um, Malacha is now introduced, Shabbat is now introduced as something of a, an interjection between Moshe's gathering the people, or as a necessary introduction, uh, a preface before, the, to, the, to before commanding regarding the Mishkan. And as a last statement, he says, Do not burn any fires in your settlements on the day of Shabbat. Now, if we were to read, say, oh, Malacha must refer to Eish, because it says it as Eish, but it's actually the opposite read, because it says, don't do any Malacha, and as a separate statement, don't burn any fires, which means Malacha must refer to something beyond the fire. And that leads to the very famous Machloket that we will get into later on in our series uh, between Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Natan about what the function of singling this out is. Is it the Chalek or the Lav? But we'll leave that alone for right now. But you notice that there's this introduction regarding Shabbat before the issue of the Mishkan. And then as you take a look in Source 10, which is later on in Vayakel, when um, after B'Tzalel and his crew are introduced, we hear that B'Tzalel and Oliav and all of the wise people who are involved in, in constructing the, the appurtenances and the, and the structure of the Mishkan and you notice throughout, and I just highlighted it to catch your eye, is the word malacha is consistently used. That, that uh, constructing the Mishkan, knowing how to weave things properly, everything is always called a malacha. So we get the sense here that the word malacha, as used in the description of the Mishkan, has something to do with the word malacha as it's used in the context of Shabbat. And the fact that Moshe prefaced his, uh, his command to B'nai Yisrael to, get, to bring all of the items for the Mishkan and to do the Malacha and identify all of, the, uh, all of the successful artisans that they would do the work with the mitzvah of Shabbat strengthens that sense of connection. Parenthetically, on the other end of things, at the end of the commands that Moshe received on Har Sinai regarding the Mishkan, uh, which are interrupted, of course, with the Egel, um, the last thing that he's commanded is Shabbat. And, uh, and here, in a chiastic fashion, the first thing he commands B'nai Israel beforehand is Shabbat. Uh, Refersh has a beautiful take on this, which is uh, homiletic, but a very powerful statement, saying you can imagine that there is no greater uh, enterprise that mankind could be involved in than constructing a place where God rests and God's abode is. And nonetheless, we have to desist from doing that to honor the Shabbat. Okay. Good. Uh, one last piece, which is a pasuk that actually shows up several times in Vay, twice in Vayikra, once in Kedoshim, once here at the end of Bahar, uh, which again juxtaposes the two, which is at Shabbatotai Tishmoru Umikdashiti Ra'uani Adonai. So guard my Shabbat and have awe from my Mikdash. But again, the two are juxtaposed and again giving us a sense that somehow the, the terminology, which is used in one place, may, be, may impact on, on another. Okay, so turn the page or scroll to the next uh, to the next source, source twelve, and that's what we've seen from Chumash. Uh, there is much, much more even in Chumash about Shabbat, and there are actually a few mentions of Shabbat. Shabbat is one of the few mitzvot uh, that make more than one appearance uh, in post Torah Tanakh. In the Nevi'im, it's in Yeshayahu, it's in Yemiyahu, it's in Nehemiah, it's in Amos, several places where Shabbat, uh, Shabbat comes, comes up, and several times in Yeshayahu. 
but uh, but we're now going to take a look at Chazal. So, in my in our Masechet, Masechet Shabbat, in the seventh parak on Daf Ayin, you have the following passages: Vayikam Moshe called it up in Israel, Eila Hadvarim. Now, if you look back up in source um, nine, you'll see that I highlighted the word Eila Hadvarim, the words Eila Hadvarim, in red. So Eila Hadvarim, that's Shishtem Tasamelacha. So the Gemara then makes the following observation: Dvarim Hadvarim Eila Hadvarim. Now, notice I used uh, increasingly dark text because what the Gemara is saying is that it could have said Dvarim, it could have said Hadvarim. But instead it says Elahad Varim. And the notion here, and this is a common Midrashic tool, is to say that if we scale down the text to the bare bones of how it could have said something, then when we see every additional nuance to the word or the phrase, we have to understand that it's increasing our informational bank about that thing. And so it could have said Dvarim. Now, the reality is, and this is again common to me, Josh, the reality is it would not have been able to say that in the text. If Moshe had said, it doesn't make sense. Nonetheless, for me, in the Midrashic style, this is, we look at the word in isolation and said, Elohadvarim could have just been Dvarim, could have been Hadvarim. It says, Elohadvarim. So what does that mean? There you get the 39 Malachot. Now, how do you get 39 out of Elohad Dvarim? So Rashi on the spot tells us. Source 13. Dvarim says, Mashma Tre. You have to remember, anytime you have a plural, then that at the very least you have two. And therefore, by the way, halachically also, anytime if you have a, a shtar where it says, he owes him dinarim, then all he can, can collect is two. Because when you have a plural, the most you can get is two. So Dvarim is Mashma Tre. Hey, Lirabot Chad. So hadvarim, that hey is there to add one more, so that's three. Haresh loshat, ela begematria shloshim and it says the word ela in its numeric value is thirty-six. So thirty-six plus three, haresh loshim v'tesha, is thirty-nine. All right, and this is now this is a a very difficult source because if you say the entire source of saying this thirty-nine avot malachot is based on a gematria, you run into some very difficult challenges for the fact that gematriot are both uh, a very late addition to our to the Talmudic tradition and are never or perhaps rarely seen and certainly never never seen as creating halachic reality. So we have to look a little bit further and understand that this gematria is what we call an asmachta, which means we already knew 39, but the but we're able to sort of identify a, sort of a uh, a uh, crutch to lean on here in this pasuk. But let's take a look at a parallel passage in the Talmud Yerushalmi, source fourteen. Avot melachot How do we know avot melachot from the Torah? And this is our question. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman, b'shem Rabbi Yonatan. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman in the Bavli is called Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani, and he's always the Talmud of Rabbi Yonatan, almost always quoting him. We're going to see this in the Bavli also, that there's 39 times that the word Malacha shows up in the Torah. And then that leads to the following interesting discussion. So they asked the question in front of Ravacha. Every time it says Malachot, it should be two, because remember, anytime you have a plural, it's two, which means if it says Malacha, let's say 30 times, but then at nine times it says melachot, so you should end up with not 39, but 48 melachot. So Amar Rabbi Shayan, who was a, an Amora, a Shegrat, that they were just kind of sort of asking this as pro forma, because ine rabbi, He looked in the Torah, and the word melachot just doesn't show up anywhere in the Torah. So it was a theoretical question, but it wasn't practical. Uh, but then they asked the following question. When it says that Yosef came back to the house to do his work, and then when Mrs. Potiphar then grabbed him, etc., is that Malacha one of the 39? And then, interestingly, on the opposite end of the spectrum, is that one because that's God's Malacha? Lo 
when the Torah commands us not to do malacha on Yom Tov, does that count as one of the 39? Right? So he says, That one's number 39. Right? So, and whether we, we can sit down and count them or not, Rabbi Yossi Be Rabbi Boon, B'Shem Rabbi Shwomer Nachmani, Keneger Arba'im Chaser Achat Pam Shkatuba Mishkan Avoda Umlacha. Now we have a different take, which is if you look into the Mishkan itself, and mainly in Vayakop Kude, you will see the word Malacha or Avoda 39 times. Now, why is he walking away from the original take? Well, one possibility is that we look at all of this as something in the area of Midrash Agadah, which means multiple suggestions are all valid. One doesn't, is, doesn't exclude the other. And they're all made as suggestions to support that which we already know, which is that there's 39 of Malachot. But it seems that Rabbi Yossi Be Rabbi Bun uh, is, is uh, taking a different tack, which is that it all revolves around the Mishkan. And therefore, it is not essentially a word count of how many times you get malacha, or that's not even the crutch you want to lean on, but rather that we find that in the construction of the Mishkan, uh, the word shows up 39 times. Now watch this. This will be familiar from the Bavli. Again, this goes back to, uh, um, to Vayakel, but not Zehadavar, Engtivkan, Ela, Ela Hadvarim. And again, same idea. It could have said this, Said that now, this one is a little different than the Bavli. The Bavli just said Dvarim, Hadvarim, and Ela Dvarim. And as I pointed out, it couldn't really say Dvarim or Hadvarim without the word Ela in Moshe's speech. But Rabbi Yosef Hanina says a little different. It could have said Zehadavar. So it could have said Zedvar Hashem, then Ela Divrei, and then Ela Hadvarim. So it's again an expansion. Now, notice he doesn't do a word count. He just says the very fact that it talks about Hadvarim gives us avot, because again, of the of the count of 39 different malachot that we find in the Mishkan, meaning the word malacha showing up 39 times, malacha avodah, and the fact that Hadvarim says there's also toladot, which means other activities which are similar to those, but weren't themselves in the Mishkan, are also going to be included. Rabbi Chalina de Tzipori, meaning from Tzipori, B'Shem Rabbi Avau, says Aleph Chad, this should sound familiar, Lamed Tlatin, Hey Chamisha. So Ela is one, is one thirty and five, so that's thirty six. Davar Chad Udvarim Train and Dvarim is two. Mikan Labim Chaser Achat. So that, by the way, um, he doesn't say from the word uh, Dvarim um, and then Hadvarim, but rather he says Davar would be one. Dvarim then becomes another two. And note, those three plus the 36 give us 39. It's a variation that we saw in the Bavli. Rabbanin de Kesri Namrin, this is a, just an, a very interesting dialectic issue, a dialectic in the sense of dialect. Uh, the rabbis in Caesarea said, you don't need anything else but the word itself. Literally, from its place, nothing's missing. Aleph Chad, Lamed Tlatin, Chet Tmanya. So they read Ela as Aleph is 1, Lamed is 30, and Chet is 8. Now, how do you get Chet when it's Ela? And the answer is, The rabbi, the answer is, those rabbis were not, uh, didn't uh, have a problem with darshaning a He as a Chet or a Chet as a He. And the reason is that they pronounced the two the same way in the north, and therefore, and Caesarea was a development of the northern uh, uh, rabbinic community, and therefore, their hays and their chets were interchangeable, and therefore, the word Ela alone was 39. Okay, interesting piece. Now, Rabbi Yochum Shem ben Lakish, Avdin Havai, Bahada Pirka, Tlat Shanin, Upalug. For three and a half years, they studied this chapter, this parak of Malachot. Afkun minei arba'in chaserachat toldot al-kochad v'chara. They were somehow able to extract, literally, 39 toladot for each av, which means that malachot are 39 squared. Min da'ashkechun mismuch samchun, hadalo'ashkechun mismuch avdunai mishum makevapatish, which means that the ones that they were able to find, they they identified, meaning, uh, and we'll see this a little later, uh, is that uh, watering your plants is a toldah of planting, right? And the ones that they couldn't identify any particular av, they associated with makevapatish, which is the uh, second to last 
in the list of, uh, of the malachot, literally finishing a job. I said, anything that doesn't fit there, that's Makeba Patish. Panoid Rabbi Chia, Rabbi Chia's sons, Chizkiah and Yehuda, Ruba Avdan Havai Bahadain Pirka Shita Yarchin. So they, st- they worked on this for six months, this sugya. Afkun mine sheet milina kochada vachada. They had six things, I guess six toladot, for each one of the 39. And they were following their father's shita. Tetani Rabbi Chia, Rabbi Chia says, Hakotzer, Botzer, Mosek, Hagodera, Tolesh, Haorek, Kulon, Mishum, Kotzer. Kotzer is the name of the Av Malacha, which is to harvest or to reap. And they said, Kotzer, which is reaping wheat or grain, Botzer, which is reaping or picking grapes, Mosek, which is olives, right? And, and the others that are all from in different um, area, in different parts of the orchard, as it were, are all considered Kotzer. And so therefore, they went through each Av Malacha and identified six distinguish, distinguishable um, uh, toldot for each one. Um, the last source we're going to look at in this second section, which is about the definition of Malachot in general, is something that looks like a parallel sugya in the Bavli. And that is uh, in the fourth parak, on Dath Memtet. And this will sound very familiar, but you'll see the differences. Um, is the 39 malachot that we have in the, in the list, where do these 39 come from? What do they correspond to, if you will? They correlate to the jobs in the Mishkan. Now, this is not what we saw in the Yushalmi, where it said the word avodah and malacha shows up 39 times in the Mishkan. These are actual acts that we can identify that took place in the Mishkan, and those are the 39, which means the, the number 39 is not based on some numeric illusion, but rather to actual facts on the ground. Now this is Rabbi Yonatan. And Rabbi Yonatan, remember, was quoted in the Yushalmi by his student, Shom Nachman, that there are 39 times that it says Malacha in the Torah. And here he's quoted as saying, somewhat similar, and in the name of his teachers, it corresponds to malacham, malachto, and malachet, meaning the word malacha with various suffixes uh, that are in the Torah, and that's 39 times. So, by Rav Yosef, and we saw this question in the Yushalmi. When Yosef comes home to do his malacha on that fateful day with Mrs. Potiphar, does that word malacha count? Does it count? So, Abaye says, and this is there's an interesting parallel to this, Abaye says, why don't we just bring a Sefer Torah and count them? Was, let's count how many times it says Malacha. If it's 38 minus that one, that one's in. If it's 40 with that one, that one's out. So Abaye says, we have a story that happened in Eretz Yisrael with a different issue where they were counting, and that's in the context of the Sugyan Kedushin, where they're identifying what the middle letter of the Torah is, that they brought a Sefer Torah and they counted it. Rav Yosef famously in that context says, they are bakiim b'chaserot v'yiterot, they're in Yisrael, they are experts in defective and plenary writing, and therefore whether things have a vav or not a vav, not a yod and not a yod, we're not, and therefore our sifre Torah all could be off, and therefore the count won't be meaningful. Um, just an interesting aside, uh, and so, so uh, that's how Rav Yosef answered it there. Rabbi said the same thing. In this context, he answers Rabbi differently. He says, because I have a different question. When it says in the context of the Mishkan, and we're going to see this um, a little bit later, and we will quote another passage, that that they concluded all of the Malacha, does that count? Which means I've got a total of 40, and now I've got two different candidates, one of which has to be out. So I'm just not sure which one it is. So counting the ones in the Torah won't help. I know how many there are in the Torah. Right, so that would mean that counts, and Malacha, which in the context of Yosef was actually, according to, and there's a Midrashic uh, split on this, where the Yosef was actually coming in order to consummate with Mrs. Potiphar, and then he was, and then his the image of his father, etc., stopped him, or whether he was actually coming in to do work. 
So if you say he was coming in to do work, that counts as a malacha, and the one in hamalachai tadayam doesn't count, or vice versa. So Rav Yosef was asking essentially a Parshani question, is how do we read the story of Yosef? The story of Yosef is, Malacha there is a euphemism for something uh, much worse, but uh, not appropriate, than the Malacha in Vayakel counts. If on the other hand, the one in Vayakel doesn't count, it's because the one in Yosef merely means he was coming home to do work, to look through the books, to to hire, fire, whatever he had to do, and then um, his Potiphar caught him, and his answer was take, I don't know. However, we have a Brita that supports this opinion that we saw here in the Bavli, that it corresponds, again, not to some numeric piece, but rather to the different kinds of jobs that were in the Mishkan. You're only chayav, you're only liable for violating Shabbat, and that's something we'll talk about in the next shiur, for doing something which it was similar to what was in the Mishkan. And as example, They planted in order to cultivate the necessary um, herbs to make for the spices, and you therefore you don't plant. Haim katsru, they harvested also, therefore you don't harvest. They lifted the boards of the Mishkan from the ground up onto the wagons in order for transport. Transport. You should also not carry, in, similarly, you should not carry things from the public domain to the private domain. The wagons were of a size that constitutes a private domain. And the converse, and the, which is they would take the uh, the boards off of the wagons. This is not on Shabbat, any of these things. They would take the boards off of the wagons and put them onto the ground when we're coming to the next spot we're going to set up the Mishkan. You don't take from Rishut Echid to Rishut Rabim. They would pass it from one Agala to the next. You don't take it from Rishut Echid to the next. And that's something that the Gemara then goes into uh, discussion about um, uh, about uh, uh, what the problem there is, and what, what is exactly the issue uh, when it comes to that. Okay, that concludes our second section. We saw different sources uh, relating to the, the, to the source of the 39 malachot. Are they based on, and to summarize, are they based on um, the, the, the illusion, the Torah says, don't do malacha. What's malacha? I go through the Torah and I see it says 39 different times the word malacha is used. And therefore, there's 39 categories, which means I, I don't know what they are. I have to figure out how to create those categories or identify them, but at least I know how many there are. And then I have to rely on halacha Sinai, which is fine. I have a tradition about what they are. But then you turn around and say, well, if I have a tradition of what they are, then what do I need to count malachot? So you, then you would likely say, well, I have a tradition about what the things are, but I don't know how to hierarchically construct them till I get the count and I get 39. On the other hand, and then we could play with not not counting the words malacha in the Torah and the problem of how to read the story of Yosef, but rather identifying um, um, the, within the context of the commands of the Mishkan, Dvarim, Hadvarim, Eila Hadvarim, the, the Yushalmi's version, the interesting Yushalmi's version with the Chet, and, uh, and, or, or the Babli's version, the way Rashi explains it, Eila's, is uh, 36, and Hadvarim alludes to three, uh, one way or the other, or we look and say, we see different activities taking place in the Mishkan, we're able to group them based on reasonable categories, and we end up end up with 39 categories. Okay, um, one last feature about Malachot Shabbat that I want to touch on, and this really is going to lead us to the next shiur, uh, is a component about the nature of Malachot. Uh, the nature of your relationship between the actor and the event. Uh, and so, as you see, in going back again to the Mishkan, going to the end of Paraklamid Hay in, uh, in Shemot, uh, you see that the people who were engaged in working on the Mishkan, and you can see it in the that which is highlighted in yellow, in purple text, is they are considered lachshov machashavot. They were thinking consciously and deliberately about what they were doing, and the passage ends with the phrase melechet machashavet. Right, we'll see how this is, play, is, is plays out. So the Gemara in Sanhedrin says, patur, meaning you're doing one thing and something else happens. 
then you're exempt. Meaning if the, the result that happened was a malacha, you're exempt. Why? Malachat machashevet aswat Torah. What the Torah prohibits is deliberate action. Meaning you're doing action and you're paying attention to it, just like in the Mishkan. And again, the Mishkan casts its shadow over Hilchot Shabbat and informs us, and it casts shadow and illuminates at the same time, uh, and, and informs us about, about, uh, about Shabbat. And the notion here is as follows. The example of the story I've told numerous times in Shi'ur uh, is that one time I was in somebody's private home and giving a Shi'ur on Shabbat, and uh, people crowded around, and somebody crowded and leaned on the wall to be able to get a little closer, and there was a little switch there that turned on the gas fireplace. And this woman leaned on it, and the switch went on, and she was horrified. She, was, she thought she had done the worst thing in the world, and I calmed her down. I said, you didn't do anything. So what do you mean I turned on the gas? No, you didn't do anything. What were you trying to do? I was trying to lean on the wall. I didn't see the switch. I said, you didn't do anything. That's mitasek. Right? And that's what we say here because it's deliberate action. So you find that the command to do proper, deliberate, thought-out action in the Mishkan actually then informs what kind of malacha we look at as being li- creating liability on Shabbat. And you see this further in the Mishnah and Chagigah. The Mishnah at the end of the first paragraph of Chagigah describes different areas of halacha and how much they are grounded in the written text and how much they depend on the oral tradition. And Hilchot Shabbat, they're like mountains hanging by a thread. Why? Very little text and lots of halachot, meaning little text in the Torah. Now, that's not true. Torah, Shabbat, is mentioned numerous times. What it means is, though, that the specific laws and details of Shabbat really are not written in, in, much, uh, in much length, at much, uh, in much length in the, in the Torah. And we have a huge traditional uh, a body of, of law, which is oral tradition. And so the Gemara asks, It says in the Torah about Shabbat. It's, what it's needed is for this particular halacha, now, this is related to Malachat Machshevet, as you'll see. We'll get back to it. Let's say you dig a hole in Shabbat, but you dig a hole not because you want the hole. You dig the hole because you want the dirt. It says you're patur. Why? Keman Rabbi Shimon. And this will take us to what we'll deal with the next year. Because Rabbi Shimon says, if you do a malacha, but you don't want the the immediate result of the malacha, but sort of the negation of it or something else, then you're patur. So therefore, even though digging a hole is a malacha as a tolda of plowing, nonetheless, if you dig the hole not because you want the hole, but because you want the dirt, then according to Bishimon, you're patur. Right? Now, we then step aside and say, Afilu Rabbi Yehuda. Even Rabbi Yehuda, who disagrees with Rabbi Shimon, as we'll see in the next year, says, Rabbi Yehuda says, you're liable for, but that's when you end up with a constructive result. But here, you're doing a destructive result. You're making a hole. So, so now why do they say that the laws of Shabbat are like hanging by a thread? So, meaning that there's not text. The answer is, and an, an amazing statement. It says, the Torah only prohibits malachat machshevet, which means deliberate action, which is not about you were deliberate in digging the hole, but your intent was different. Here, we're talking about an action where you didn't intend that action at all, like leaning on the wall and hitting the switch. And malachat machshevet loktiva, meaning it doesn't say malachat machshevet. Well, we just saw pasuk, malachat machshevet in source 16. The answer is, yeah, that's talking about the deliberation of the people working for the Mishkan, not about Shabbat. And so therefore, that's why the Mishnah identifies it that way. I want to just show you two examples of the issue of Malacha She'enat Tzuchah Gufa to kind of bring us in towards, uh, in towards uh, as an introduction to, uh, to, to next week's Shi'ur. And the Mishnah in the 10th parak, as you see in Source 19, says that if you carry a dead person uh, out of the house, uh, in a bed, you're chayav. It starts by saying, if you carry a live person out, carrying a live person, you're not chayav for if it's somebody who could walk on their own. So you carry somebody out, you're not allowed to do it, but if you carry them out, uh, you're patur, and you're patur even for the bed or the chair or whatever it is that they're in, because that's tafel, that's sub- subsidiary to them. 
But if you carry a dead body out, dead body obviously can't walk on its own, you're chayav. Rabbi Shimon Poter. All right, so now the Gemara says, If he said, not only if you're carrying a, a dead body out of the house, because you want to get them out of the house, but even if you're carrying them to bury them. But he agrees, Rabbi Shimon would agree, that if you carried a tool out, like a hoe, in order to do some hoeing or digging, or a Sefer Torah in order to read, the Chayav, so Pshita, that's obvious, should be Chayav. If that would be called Malacha, Carrying a Sefer Torah outside because you want to read it there, uh, then, then there is no such thing as So the answer is meaning maybe you need that, the, maybe the requirement is that the Malacha has to be done for, the, for your own purpose and the purpose of the action. Maybe, for instance, the Sefer Torah that you take out both to read but also to correct, which means you're doing it for the purpose of the action but also for the item itself. So, Kamash Malan, you don't need that in order to be Chayav. But notice, and again, we're going to go into details in this in the next Shiur, but notice that what we're dealing with here is issues of intent. Issues of intent, starting with mitasek, which means I didn't even intend to do this action at all. And second of all, issues of intent is I intend to do this action, but my purpose in doing this action is perhaps not uh, the for the purpose of the action, but for the negation of the action or something else that may render liability, liability or may not. And that's a machlok at Rabbi Shimon. Uh, and we see another example of this at the end of this parak in Masachat Kritot. Let's say you have coals and you stir the coals just because you want to warm up by them. And then what happens is they restart the fire. There's a machloket, whether you're chayav for mavir, for inflaming. And the Gemara identifies the two opinions as being Rabbi Yudin and Rabbi Shimon. If you are pushing the coals, now pushing the coals, you're deliberately doing it. And your purpose in doing it is just to get some warmth. You want to put your hand near the coals. However, or you move them a little closer. And if the result is that they make a fire, then Rabbi Shimon Seir Patur, because your aim in doing it was not that. That leads us to the next category that will be fully dealt with, meaning it won't be touched on here, which is the Varshinamit Kavain, and that's going to be the main focus of the next Shior. Just to, to see as a final piece, the Rambam in Hilchot Shabbat, Perak Aleph, Halacha Zayin says, Kol HaOsen, the Rambam's beautiful, elegant, and clear language uh, is, a, is a beautiful way to sum this up. Kol HaOsen, Malacha Shabbat. Anybody does Malacha Shabbat. Even though you don't need the, the result of this Malacha, as it were, you're Chayav. We'll see what that means. Uh, and he's ruling like Rabbi Yehuda. Let's say that you have a candle burning and you put out the candle because you want to spare the oil and use the oil for something or you want the wick for something. Or let's say you do it so that the candle doesn't start a fire. Or that, the, that you feel that the, uh, the ceramic holder of the candle itself is starting to get overheated and you're concerned it's going to break. Then you're still chayav. Why? Uh, extinguishing a flame is a malacha. And you intended to uh, to um, extinguish. And that goes again to mitasek. You weren't mitasek, you intended to do that. But you didn't really need the extinguishing, you just needed a byproduct of it, which is cooling down or whatever it may be. Good. Same thing if you move, let's say, a dangerous thing in, in the public area, like a big thorn. You move it four steps, four amot in the Rishud Rabim. Or you put out a coal that's out there in the street so people won't get hurt by it. Why? You didn't put it out in order to have a put-out coal. You put it out so it wouldn't be there. You didn't move the 
thorn, so it should be over there. You move the thorn, so it shouldn't be here. Anything of that type, you would be chayav for. Okay, this is the end of this first shiur. Uh, in the next week's shiur, we will deal more formally with categories of and and that will introduce us to the categories of psikresha. Again, these are broad topics that touch on almost everything in Hilchot Shabbat. Um, and uh, and um, as you see, that the Rambam in his Hilchot Shabbat begins Hilchot Shabbat with the definition of the uh, general areas of malacha and of intent and of purpose in doing the malacha. Uh, as part of that categorization. Okay, we'll see you next time. Emir Tzai Shem.